Section 24 of The Myths of the New World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Myths of the New World by Daniel Brenton. Chapter 9, Part 2. Neither the delights of a heaven on the one hand, nor the terrors of a hell on the other, were ever held out by priests or sages as an incentive to well-doing, or a warning to the evil disposed. Different fates, indeed, awaited the departed souls, but these rarely, if ever, were decided by their conduct while in the flesh, but by the manner of death, the punctuality with which certain sepulchral rites were fulfilled by relatives, or other similar arbitrary circumstance beyond the power of the individual to control. This view, which I am well aware is directly at variance with that of all previous writers, may be shown to be that natural to the uncultivated intellect everywhere, and the real interpretation of the creeds of America. Whether these arbitrary circumstances were not construed to signify the decision of the divine mind on the life of the man, is a deeper question, which there is no means at hand to solve. Those who have complained of the hopeless confusion of American religions have but proven the insufficiency of their own means of analyzing them. The uniformity which they display in so many points is nowhere more fully illustrated than in the unanimity with which they all point to the sun as the land of the happy souls, the realm of the blessed, the scene of the joyous hunting-grounds of the hereafter. Its perennial glory, its comfortable warmth, its daily analogy to the life of man, marks its abode as the pleasantest spot in the universe. It matters not whether the eastern Algonquins pointed to the south, others of their nation, with the Iroquois and Creeks to the west, or many tribes to the east, as the direction taken by the spirit, all these myths but mean that it is born in the home of the sun, which is perhaps in the Orient, whence he comes forth, in the Occident, where he makes his bed, or in the south, whither he retires in the chilling winter. Where the sun lives, they informed the earliest foreign visitors, where the villages of the deceased, and the Milky Way, which nightly spans the arch of heaven, was, in their opinion, the road that led thither, and was called the path of the souls. Le Chemin des Ames. To Hoyeku, the mansion of the sun, said the Caribs, the soul passes when death overtakes the body. Our knowledge is scanty of the doctrines taught by the Incas concerning the soul, but this much we do know, that they looked to the sun, their recognized lord and protector, as he who would care for them at death and admit them to his palaces. There, not indeed exquisite joys, but a life of unruffled placidity, void of labor, vacant of strong emotions, a sort of material nirvana awaited them. For these reasons, they, with most other American nations, interred the corpse lying east and west, and not as the traveller Mayan has suggested, from the reminiscences of some ancient migration. 
Beyond the Cordilleras, quite to the coast of Brazil, the innumerable hordes who wandered through the sombre tropical forests of that immense territory also pointed to the west, to the region beyond the mountains, as the land where the souls of their ancestors lived, in undisturbed serenity. Or in the more brilliant imaginations of the later generations, in a state of perennial inebriety, surrounded by infinite casks of rum and with no white man to dole it out to them. The natives of the extreme south, of the Pampas and Patagonia, suppose the stars are the souls of the departed. At night they wander about the sky, but the moment the sun rises they hasten to the cheerful light, and are seen no more, until it disappears in the west. So the Eskimo of the distant north, in the long winter nights, when the aurora bridges the sky, with its changing hues and arrowy shafts of light, believes he sees the spirits of his ancestors, clothed in celestial raiment, disporting themselves in the absence of the sun, and calls the phenomenon the dance of the dead. The home of the sun was the heaven for, of the red man, but to this joyous abode not every one without distinction, no miscellaneous crowd, could gain admittance. The conditions were as various as the national temperaments. As the fierce gods of the Norsemen would admit no soul to the banquets of Valhalla, but such as had met the spear-death in the bloody play of war, and shut out pitilessly all those who feebly breathed their last in the straw-death on the couch of sickness. So the warlike Aztec race in Nicaragua held that the shades of those who died in their beds went downward unto naught, but of those who fell in battle for their country to the east, to the place whence comes the sun. In ancient Mexico, not only the warriors who were thus sacrificed on the altar of their country, but with a delicate and poetical sense of justice that speaks well for the refinement of the race, also those women who perished in childbirth were admitted to the home of the sun. For are not they also heroines in the battle of life? Are they not also its victims? And do they not lay down their lives for country and kindred? Every morning, it was imagined, the heroes came forth in battle array, and with shout and song and the ring of weapons, accompanied the sun to the zenith, where at every noon the souls of the mothers, the Chiqua Pepelte, received him with dances, music, and flowers, and bore him company to his western couch. Except these, none, without it may be, the victims sacrificed to the gods, and this is doubtful, were deemed worthy of the highest heaven. A mild and unwarlike tribe of Guatemala, on the other hand, were persuaded that to die by any other than a natural death was to forfeit all hope of life hereafter, and therefore left the bodies of the slain to the beasts and vultures. The Mexicans had another place of happiness for departed souls, not promising perpetual life as the home of the sun, but unalloyed pleasure for a certain term of years. This was Tlalocan, the realm of the god of rains and waters, the terrestrial paradise, whence flowed all the rivers of the earth and all the nourishment of the race. 
the diseases of which persons died marked this destination such as were drowned or struck by lightning or succumbed to humoral complaints as dropsies and leprosy were by these tokens known to be chosen as the subjects of tlaloc to such said the natives death is the commencement of another life it is as waking from a dream and the soul is no more human but divine Teot. therefore they addressed their dying in terms like these sir or lady awake awake already does the dawn appear even now is the light approaching already do the birds of yellow plumage begin their songs to greet thee already are the gaily tinned butterflies flitting around thee before proceeding to the more gloomy portion of the subject to the destiny of those souls who were not chosen for the better part i must advert to a curious coincidence in the religious reveries of many nations which finds its explanation in the belief that the house of the sun is the home of the blessed and proves that this was the first conception of most natural religions it is seen in the events and obstacles of the journey to the happy land we everywhere hear of a water which the soul must cross, and an opponent, either a dog or an evil spirit, which it has to contend with. We are all familiar with the dog Kerberus, called by Homer simply the dog, which disputed the passage of the river Styx, over which the souls must cross, and with the custom of the Vikings to be buried in a boat, so that they might cross the waters of Ginunja Gap, to the inviting strands of Godheim. Relics of this belief are found in the Koran, which describes the bridge El Sirat, thin as a hair and sharp as a scimitar, stretched in a single span from heaven to earth. In the Persian legend, where the rainbow-arched Kinevad is flung across the gloomy depth between this world and the home of the happy, and even in the current Christian allegory, which represents the waters of the mythical Jordan, rolling between us and the celestial city. How strange, at first sight, does it seem, that the Hurons and Iroquois should have told the earliest missionaries that after death the soul must cross a deep and swift river on a bridge formed by a single slender tree, most lightly supported, where it had to defend itself against the attacks of a dog. If only they had expressed this belief, it might have passed for a coincidence merely. But the Atapascas, Chipeans, also told of a great water, which the soul must cross in a stone canoe. The Algonquins and Dakotas, of a stream bridged by an enormous snake, or a narrow and precipitous rock. And the Araucanians of Chile, of a sea in the west, in crossing which the soul was required to pay toll to a malicious old woman, were it unluckily impecunious, she deprived it of an eye. With the Aztecs this water was called Chtkuonapa, the Nine Rivers. It was guarded by a dog and a green dragon, con to conciliate with the dead, were furnished with slips of paper by way of toll. The Greenland Eskimos thought that the waters roared through an unfathomable abyss, over which, 
there was no other bridge than a wheel, slippery with ice, forever revolving with fearful rapidity, or a path, narrow as a cord, with nothing to hold on by. On the other side sits a horrid old woman, gnashing her teeth and tearing her hair with rage. As each soul approaches, she burns a feather under its nose. If it faints, she seizes it for her prisoner. But if the soul's guardian spirit can overcome her, it passes through in safety. The similarity to the passage of the soul across the sticks and the toll of the obolus to Heron is in the Aztec legend still more striking, when we remember that the sticks was the ninth head of Oceanus, omitting the cockatus, often a branch of the sticks. The nine rivers probably refer to the nine lords of the night, ancient Aztec deities, guarding the nocturnal hours, and introduced into their calendar. The Tupis and Caribs, the Mayas and Creeks, entertained very similar expectations. We are to seek the explanation of these widespread theories of the soul's journey in the equally prevalent tenet that the sun is its destination, and that that luminary has its abode beyond the ocean stream, which in all primitive geographies rolls its waves around the habitable land. This ocean stream is the water which all have to attempt to pass, and woe to him whom the spirit of the waters, represented either as the old woman, the dragon, or the dog of Hecate, seizes and overcomes. In the lush fancy of the Orient, the spirit of the waters becomes the spirit of evil, the ocean stream, the abyss of hell, and those who fail in the passage the damned, who are foredoomed to evil deeds and endless torture. No such ethical bearing as this was ever assigned the myth by the red race before they were taught by Europeans. Father Brebeuf could only find that the souls of suicides and those killed in war were supposed to live apart from others. But as to the souls of scoundrels, he adds, so far from being shut out, they are the welcome guests, though for that matter, if it were not so, their paradise would be a total desert, as Huron and Scoundrel, Huron et Laron, are one and the same. When the Minetarius told Major Long and the Manikikas of the La Plata, the Jesuits, that the souls of the bad fell into the waters and were swept away, these are beyond doubt attributable either to a false interpretation or to Christian instruction. No such distinction is probable among savages. The Brazilian natives divided the dead into classes, supposing that the drowned, those killed by violence, and those yielding to the disease, lived in separate regions. But no ethical reason whatever seems to have been connected with this. If the conception of a place of moral retribution was known at all to the race, it should be found easily recognizable in Mexico, Yucatan, or Peru. But the so-called hells of their religions have no such significance, and the spirits of evil, who were identified by early writers with Satan, no more deserve the name than does the Greek Pluto. Cupe or Supe, the shadow, in Peru was supposed to rule the land of shades, 
in the centre of earth. To him went all souls, not destined to be the companions of the sun. This is all we know of his attributes, and the assertion of Garcilaso de la Vega that he was the analogue of the Christian devil, and that his name was never pronounced without spitting and muttering a curse on his head, may be invalidated by the testimony of an earlier and better authority on the religion of Peru, who calls him the god of rains, and adds that the famous Inca, Huayna Capac, was his high priest. The devil, says Cogoludo of the Mayas, is called by Sam Xibilha, which means he who disappears or vanishes. In the legends of the Quiches, the name Xibalca is given as that of the underworld ruler by the grim lords one death and seven death. The derivation of the name is from a root, meaning to fear, from which comes the term in Maya dialects for a ghost or phantom. Under the influence of a century of Christian catechizing, the Quisha legends portray this really as a place of torment, and its rulers as malignant and powerful. But as I have before pointed out, they do so, protesting that such was not the ancient belief, and they let fall no word that shows that it was regarded as the destination of the morally bad. The original meaning of the name given by Cogoludo points unmistakably to the simple fact of disappearance from among men, and corresponds in harmlessness to the true sense of those words of fear, shell, Hades, hell, all signifying hidden from sight, and only endowed with more grim associations by the imaginations of later generations. Mictlan Toitli, Lord of Mictlan, from a word meaning to die, was the Mexican Pluto, like Cupe. He dwelt in a subterranean regions, and his palace was named Tal Chico, the navel of the earth. Yet he was also located in the far north, and that point of the compass and the north wind were named after him. Those who descended to him were oppressed by the darkness of his abode, but were subjected to no other trials, nor were they thither as a punishment, but merely from having died of diseases, and fitting them for Tlalocan. Mictlantoitli was said to be the most powerful of the gods. For who is stronger than death, and who dare defy the grave? As the skald lets Odin say to Bragi, Our lot is uncertain. Even on the hosts of the gods gazes the grey Fenris wolf. End of section 24